The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Listeners should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any legal matter. Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Visit us online at changehealthcare.com. Hello, everyone. Today is May 24th, 2021, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection Podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, is Erin Malik. Hey, Erin. Good morning. Good morning. I am pleased to introduce our special guest today, David Finney, who is co-founder and partner at Leap Orbit. David co-founded Leap Orbit with the vision of bringing a smart group of people together to make a meaningful difference in the world with deep knowledge of healthcare technology and entrepreneurial spirit and technical prowess. He built a company that is able to identify unmet market needs, incubate, incubate solutions and accelerate them into the market through a proven set of processes. Prior to founding Leap Orbit, David served as a senior advisor to CRISP, Maryland and DC and West Virginia's HIE, where he was focused on integrated care and support of Maryland's unique all-payer hospital financing model. David, welcome welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Deanne. Thanks, Ariane. I appreciate you guys having me. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? I wanted to share with our listeners, you know, what led you to want to work in healthcare policy and really what brought you to where you are here with us today? Sure. Um, well, I, it's a, um, a story that had a bunch of swerves in it, I, I guess. I, I um, come from a family that, that has had a lot of physicians in it over, over several generations, and I came out of college as an English major. Um, and, you know, I continue to gravitate back toward, towards healthcare. Um, and I think what I saw as sort of an English major and a writer is the, the sort of intersection of this incredible complexity of, of the healthcare system um, and, and increasingly the complexity of the technology landscape. Um, that there's a need for, for communicators and storytellers and simplifiers and people who can take um, sort of this this labyrinth of complexity and, and try to turn it into a story that you know all of us as consumers of healthcare and healthcare IT um, you know have to try to figure out how to understand. So that's kind of become my mission. Um, it's it's sort of my little corner of of the healthcare industry and the way that I you know that I've tried to make a, make a difference. Great. Well, I want to pick up on something you said there, labyrinth. And I use that as a segue into what, what we're going to talk about today. Um, really, I, I wanted to frame today's discussion about HIPAA, um, which, of course, uh, stands for the Health Insurance Portability Act. Um, and first of all, how, how do we spell HIPAA, H-I-P-A-A? Um, but also talk about some of the nuances of what it authorizes in terms of data use and why. Um, and also explore some of the topics that involves uh, data outside of HIPAA the common rule, um, patient authorization, patient consent. So really kind of a HIPAA 101 and going a little bit beyond that. Um, so with that in mind, uh, Arian and David, in your minds, what does HIPAA authorize and why? Let's, let's level set the equation there. 
So Aaron, do you want to start and then David? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm glad you started with how do you spell HIPAA? Uh, one of my, <laughs> one of my clear tests is when somebody tries to sell me something, um, I, I look at the slides and if it has two P's, uh, on HIPAA compliant, then uh, then it's a no go. Uh, and then if they if they actually don't use the word HIPAA compliant because it's a, a meaningless term, um, that's even better. Uh, it it confuses people. HIPAA confuses people a ton, um, and I think people think that we have a uniform health privacy law in this country. Um, and the reality is that we have a patchwork of health privacy laws. Uh, one of which is HIPAA. Um, we're getting a lot of uh, a lot of um, confusion now because uh, people think that HIPAA means I don't have to tell you whether I'm vaccinated, or HIPAA means I don't have to wear a mask, or you know what have you. Um, HIPAA really covers what are called covered entities, which is a fun tautology. Um, but HIPAA, the law, came out of um, Dan, as you mentioned, uh, it came out of the, the legal structure that gave us portability of health insurance um, and administrative um, automation. And in particular, it came out of the, um, the, uh, the move to go to electronic administrative transactions for eligibility and claiming and, uh, and all of that. So all of the backend financial stuff. And as we were moving those transactions from paper to electronic, um, the lawmakers wanted to make sure that we had privacy for um, those information flows baked into law. And that's a little bit of an explanation as to why the legal structure for health privacy is a little bit odd. It was sort of shoehorned into moving electronic transactions primarily for administrative purposes. Um, in and as a consequence of that, HIPAA covers the parties um, that engage in primarily those administrative transactions. It, it covers um, the transaction sets that, that primarily CMS has authorized. Um, and so really, if you're a provider, uh, pretty broadly written, um, who conducts um, eligibility, claiming remittance, ever gets paid for healthcare um, through an insurance company. If you're an insurance company that provides healthcare services and trans transacts with one of those um, standards, or if you're a clearinghouse, somebody who sits in the middle, um, you are a covered entity and you have a certain set of obligations. And I think it's really an important foundational piece is that it really just covers certain actors in the US healthcare sector and it does not cover all health privacy. Um, so I'm, I'm just gonna, I, I think that's a really foundational thing uh, to, to understand. Uh, and it's a, it's a little odd, it's a little confusing. Um, and uh, it, it, I think accounts for some of the confusion that we have more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I would add to that, Aaron, um, the, the way I sometimes think about this is uh, HIPAA is is pretty is really good at making um, uh, creating a structure for data to move efficiently across treatment, payment and operations, um, which I think to your point about sort of the origins of the rule, um, it, it was it was designed to, to do that efficiently. Um, and so that's where you kind of get into the, the idea of informed consent. Um, but then anything that exists outside of treatment, payment, and operations is where it gets more complicated. 
Um, and, uh, and, um, we start talking about, you know, an authorization, which is, a, which is a different concept from, from a consent. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And, um, you know, certainly, you know, Arian, thanks for mentioning that folks are perhaps confusing the idea of revealing your vaccination status is a violation of HIPAA, um, you know, within that treatment payment, um, and operations, public health is not one of those. Um, so I think that's important to note. Um, but that said, you know, when we look at the boundaries that is HIPAA versus, um, and I've heard that in policy conversations referred to as HIPAA land, not to be confused with like a theme park, but just HIPAA land um, versus things outside of HIPAA, which might also be referred to as HTC, FTC land, uh, the Federal Trade Commission that monitors, you know, that, that regulates that data versus the common rule. You know, here's where I think we get a lot of nuances and perhaps some confusion in the industry. So I wanted um, Arian and then David to comment on your viewpoint of, of those. Sure. Points. I think the easiest way to think about um, HIPAA is that if you're dealing with your provider, your doctor, your pharmacy, your whatever, um, or if you're dealing with your health plan, and there's a little bit of nuance here, um, that the information that your provider has about you or the information that your your um, health plan has about you is covered under HIPAA. Um, and that gives you broad rights, um, A, uh, to make sure that data is gonna flow for purposes that are, that are sort of a priori reasonable, uh, treatment, payment, or operations. And there's def definitions for each of those in the, in the rule. Um, and also gives you the right to access your own data. Um, basically any data that's being used to, or could be used to make a decision about you that is tied to your identity, um, you have the right to, to access. Um, that's the domain of HIPAA land. There's a little, the little bit of nuance there is that um, employment law um, also comes into play uh, and uh, the ADA uh, comes into play. So uh, sometimes your employer also acts as your self-insured payer. And there's a clear delineation there between um, HIPAA land, which is when you're, when you're dealing with your employer as a payer, um, usually through some kind of delegated um, responsibility with, a, with a, an administrative services payer. But if you're dealing with your employer as a payer, you're in HIPAA land. If you're dealing with your employer as an employer, you're in employment law land. And in particular, with respect to health conditions, you're under ADA uh, land. If, if, there's, uh, if there's health information that could be uh, considered a disability under, under ADA. Um, there may be other employment law that covers uh, that activity. All right, so those, that's, that's HIPAA land. Um, and employment law land. And then, you know, you've got a patient app, you've got your own data, you're using, you're using your own data in a patient app. Um, that that uh, use is broadly covered by the privacy policy that your app that you use um, publishes. They're required to publish um, a privacy policy and the, uh, the authority uh, for all that activity is uh, oddly enough, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and they're really at it uh, in that context to make sure that the, the vendor of choice that you, that you chose to use is abiding behind what they said they were gonna do. 
So, you know, there's nothing that prevents them from publishing your health information on the side of a building, but only if you if they said in their privacy policy, you know, this service is to publish your health information on the side of a building. If they say that, you know, this service is to keep your health safe and protect your health and not share it with anybody, and then they publish it on the side of a building, they violated um, they violated their contract with you and both your contract law between you and them, but also the FTC comes into play to make sure that they're that they're abiding behind um, the the promises that they made to you. And then you get into the research common rule um, that governs information that's being conducted in clinical research, a clinical trial. Um, and you know, there's, there are particulars of how uh, your data is handled in that context. Again, providing you some privacy requirements, um, but also um, you know, you don't have the right to access for clinical trials data um, in the same way that you do for Hippoland data. Um, because for example, we need to protect some of the clinical trial data for um, uh, in an enrollment period uh, for, for blinding. Um, so you have, in some cases, different privacy requirements if you're in a clinical trial versus um, if you're receiving care. And then just to make it a little more complicated, HIPAA is a floor with respect to privacy, not a ceiling with respect to privacy. So states can and do put in place more comprehensive privacy law. So the way that privacy works in California versus the way that privacy works in Texas versus the way that privacy works in, um, I don't know, Kentucky are three completely different things uh, with HIPAA as a common floor. Arian, there's, there's one other, um flavor in the buffet that I want to bring up that I think has um, gotten quite a bit of attention lately, which is uh, substance use treatment data, um, which is covered by, you know, yet, yet a different sort of um, privacy and consent structure called 42 CFR part two, which is a um, rulemaking that's been done by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. Um, and this is actually sort of a, a little corner of, of patient privacy that we've spent a lot of time on in our work uh, tackling the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen in, in health information exchanges and, and interoperability is that um, many healthcare organizations steer clear of uh, trying to share substance use treatment information as part of sort of broader care coordination strategies. Um, you know, obviously this is highly sensitive data. It, it could subject patients to, to discrimination and stigma. Um, but, but on the other hand, as we've kind of as a country dealt with um, the, the aftershocks of the and, and ongoing um, consequences of the opioid epidemic, um, the inability to make providers at, at different uh, points in the continuum aware of someone's struggle with a substance use issue really, really puts the healthcare industry at a disadvantage in trying to provide you know good care for these folks that really need it. Yeah, thank you for that. Also, important um, corner of health privacy law. And again, just to make that even more complicated. Um, SAMHSA um, applies in cases where SAMHSA actually funds the substance abuse clinic. So uh, you always find these weird corner cases. Uh, my favorite, my favorite sort of gotcha question is you know, relating to, for example, the overlap between FERPA, which covers 
um, covers uh, educational institutions yep. that do funds through the U.S. federal government and HIPAA. So what if you're a what if you're a student-run uh, clinic, um, and you know what law applies? You, you, there's just these overlapping areas that make life very complicated, and each one of these laws. So SAMHSA is a great example of a law that was put in place, a regular and a regulatory framework that was put in place to protect um, the privacy of people with substance abuse disorders, um, and yet at the same time when you're providing care for people, um, uh, there are many cases where those protections and the particularly the patchwork nature of those protections, the, the, this law applies in this situation, this rule applies in this situation, these, you know, these regulations apply over here, but not over here, makes it very difficult to both protect um, patient privacy and enable uh, patient care that flows with the wishes uh, of, of the patient. That, that's right. I mean, I think that there is some reason for optimism as you kind of look at this patchwork and, and some of the un, unintended consequences of the, the overlapping nature of the rules. Um, it, it is hard to, um, to change federal regulations, but, but not impossible. Um, and, and if you look at SAMHSA, just as an example, I think um, you, you probably because of the visibility of the opioid epidemic and, and also, frankly, because the technology landscape has been changing so rapidly, you are seeing um, regulators try to harmonize um, part two with, with, HIP, with HIPAA more broadly so that um, some of that complexity starts to be absolved. Yeah, I would agree with that, David. Um, I've seen that that issue um, become almost a lightning rod between folks that are concerned that it will um, perpetuate stigma or perhaps expose information inappropriately, but yet there's many in the mental health community that um, particularly because of the devastating effects of the opioid crisis are adamant that that 42 CFR um, part two needs to be harmonized with HIPAA and data use for treatment, payment, and operations, and a consent mechanism that is similar to that of which we have in HIPAA versus, um, you know, when, when that edict was first written, it was in the 70s, and it has not been modernized really since that time. Which I think is a good segue into our next question, looking at the role of patient authorization in HIPAA. How do we get patient authorization and how do we manage all the consents? So would appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, easy, easy topic. It might be worthwhile thinking about when we need patient authorization versus uh, when we, so A, you know, What's the difference between consent and authorization? I think in ordinary language, they're the same thing. HIPAA actually treats them differently, um, which is confusing. Uh, but generally in HIPAA land, information can flow for, as we mentioned, treatment, payment, and operations with specific definitions under, under HIPAA. Um, there are some oddities around uh, operations in terms of when information can get consolidated across different um, different organizations um, or, or not. Um, and then there are activities that are that are outside of treatment payment and authorization where if we want to use the data um, for some purpose, uh, we need to collect additional authorization from the patient. 
Um, one really uh, weird edge case, not weird edge case, but one significant edge case here is that um, HIPAA as a law covered personally identifiable information. Lawmakers at the time were concerned about information about individuals um, uh, you know, being inappropriately disclosed when it was electronically captured. Um, and as a result of calling things personally identifiable information, there are specific guardrails for um, uh, anonymized uh, information, so-called de-identified information. Um, there are specific guardrails uh, for the definition of aggregated uh, information that includes information um, across multiple patients. And broadly speaking, de-identified data is outside of the confines of HIPAA. So there's no uh, uniform uh, national health privacy law that covers the use of data for which um, identifiable information has been stripped off, which again, I think is a surprise to many people. Um, although any such use of that data um, is either done by your provider organization or done with the explicit um, allowance of your provider organization or your payer organization under um, a, a, a contract called the Business Associate Agreement or BAA. Um, so you, you can't just willy-nilly uh, de-identify and aggregate data, uh, but broadly speaking, once you de-identify de and aggregate data, it comes outside of um, it comes outside of HIPAA. So again, that's a little thing that people get surprised by. Why isn't my authorization required when you, you know, assemble a data set that includes, uh, you know, quote my information unquote uh, in ways that have been de-identified? Well, that's strictly speaking outside of the um, the national health privacy laws. So anything that is personally identifiable about you. Um, that's held by a covered entity under HIPAA that is not used for treatment payment and operations requires your specific authorization. That authorization is durable only for a year. It needs to be specified for the kind of purpose for which you're, the, for which you know your organization, your the provider organization or payer uh, or clearinghouse is seeking to use that information. Um, and managing those authorizations, particularly in cases where you reasonably want the information to flow, um, is, a, is a challenge. And, and oftentimes the, the default is to not flow information in ways that are consistent with your desires. David, anything to add? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think in reality, what you end up with in these authorization scenarios is a, um, you know, a lot, uh, imagine a big pile of paper, whether it's actually paper or, or um, some elect, uh, electronic sort of filing system where um, you've authorized sort of single purpose um, exchanges of data um, again and again and again. And there, there tends not to be sort of a longitudinal view of, of your wishes um, as they exist at any one point in time. Um, and given that's the case, uh, you either don't exchange um, data in, in accordance with a patient's wishes, or you just end up capturing authorizations that reflect sort of the same pattern of facts again and again, which is um, you know, not terribly efficient and probably not the best experience for the patient. Yeah, good point. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare Platform. 
we provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. I want to touch on something, Erin, that you said about the de-identification of data. Um, I, I want to make that pretty clear to our listeners that there actually is a de-identification standard under the HIPAA privacy rule and information about it is, is actually on the Health and Human Services website, hhs.gov backslash HIPAA, uh, and talking about the expert determination and statistical principles and also you know, that's one way to do it. The other is the safe harbor method where 18 specific identifiers are stripped out. And the idea is that this information cannot be re-identified um, and is un- in accordance with that standard. And as you mentioned, Erin, once it is de-identified, it is no longer within HIPAA land, but is simply a data set. Um, any last, any, any other thoughts on, uh, I wanna talk about the complexity of differing state laws, which I know we touched on a little bit. Um, but really, I, I just wanted to get your views on that. I have my own opinions, but wanted to get both of you to uh, to weigh in on that. I, I, I first of all, just wanted to say, if your head isn't spinning already, um, <laughs> you know, it, this is a confusing topic. And I, I do think it is needlessly confusing. Um, we built the system bit by bit. Um, rather than building a system that sort of makes uh, holistic sense um, top down. I think there's very little chance that um, Congress is going to come together and build a uniform health privacy law. Although, Deanne, you're more the expert than we are. I also want to say that none of the three of us um, are uh, lawyers. At least I don't believe we are. Uh, I certainly am not. So please don't take anything that we say as legal advice. And please um, please ask for um, the advice of counsel if you're trying to navigate through uh, these waters. I, I, have a, I have a question for you guys. I mean, um, do, do you think there's some reason for optimism that we can we can start to engineer our way out of out of the complexity of, of this sort of um, privacy regime we live in? And what I mean by that is, um, if you look at new technology and new standards for interoperability, I, I think we have tools now that we that we didn't have even five years ago to um, capture and document and reflect the complexity of, you know, particular patients' um, privacy wishes at any point in time, um, and, and to consult with, you know, to check to check those wishes before we execute a particular transaction or, or not. Um, I don't know, Arian, what, what's your sort of level of optimism that, that technology might be part of, part of the answer for all of this? Um. Uh, It's it's such a great question. I mean, when we built Commonwealth, one of the notions was we were going to build a a privacy engine um, in the sky and keep track of patient authorizations and consents. And um, I think the workflow associated with that was always the obstacle uh, to building to building that in. Um, I remember with a little bit of shock when we were first doing electronic prescribing that um, we were required 
uh, as part of electronic prescribing, even though all the electronic prescribing information was treatment um, and, and flood for treatment purposes, we were required to validate um, patient consent, particularly for pulling down medication history, mm-hmm. uh, for doing um, drug utilization review checking, um, interaction checking. But in practice, that sort of noble requirement to, to collect authorizations became a simple check mark uh, that was done really pro forma um, and done once and flowed through and sort of was was never reviewed again. So it's the human fact, like a lot of these things, um, the technology um, is is relatively feasible. You can build a rules engine that matches the type of data request. Almost all of these things sort of get to um, a finite set of things. Who's asking? For what purpose are they asking? And what specific data are they, are they asking? And does that who, uh, what, and you know what subset? Who for what purpose and 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 what information does that match in accord with with individual wishes? And you can put in sensible defaults, and you can um, you can parameterize and capture more real world uh, information flows that are more scenario driven for the patient. The complexity here is a social complexity of it requires a lot of very complex conversations uh, to walk, walk through. So I don't know, maybe you could do a beautiful mobile app that walked that walked people, individuals, all of us through a variety of scenarios and helped us capture um, what our true preferences are. Um, it's when you when you put that down into clinical practice and you practice you you, you slap that up against the practice of of clinical medicine that you discover that having nuanced conversations about topics like this um, doesn't really fit with a fee-for-service uh, world. And there's just no space to have the, have the true conversations that are necessary for, um, for you know, the contextual integrity, um, to use a term that Helen Nissenbaum uh, uh, coined in this space, uh, to, to really pull out the contextual integrity. But you've been doing a lot of work in this space. You may have a a, a much more optimistic perspective than I do. I don't think it's a technology problem. I think it's a social problem um, and a business problem, as it often is. Um, with enough will and with the right nuance, I, I think we've got the right technology to help solve the problem. But again, you may have a, a different take on this. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. I mean, I think I, I think the technology generally exists here. Um, I, I, I think um, one of the other social problems is that you know, for a certain type of consumer, um, a mobile app with, you know, a hundred different sliders on it, where you could, you could um, toggle all of your, um, every little gradation of your consent preferences for a thousand different scenarios might be really attractive, right? I mean, that there are folks that, um, that are used to those types of interfaces to, to manage other parts of their, of their online life. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it's too often the people that have the most complex healthcare needs are are not the types of people that that have access to technology or or are technology literate. Um, and and that's where I think you could you know you, you could really move the needle if if you could exchange data in more efficient ways. So um, I, I tend to agree with you. 
Yeah, I just wanted to also circle back on something um, that was mentioned. Erin, um, you're right. It seems that this year, the appetite for con Congress to move on something that would specifically address healthcare data outside of HIPAA, um, it, it I, I just isn't looking like that will um, come to fruition this year. But again, it's, it's May 24th, so I, I could be wrong. Um, in the interim, we've seen states move forward on that, most notably, of course, uh, California weighing in with their own version of how data should be de-identified under CCPA and CCPR, um, yeah, CCPA. And, you know, I just, I'm, I was really hopeful that we would get to some sort of federal standard simply because the cost of compliance in the healthcare industry with having to comply with a patchwork of state laws uh, is nothing to overlook. It is not a um, minimal uh, item, but you know, I think there's there's definitely room for more conversations on that and how we could get to a federal standard. I think we've just had too much lag on that and watch the states take some leadership there. Yeah, Deanna, I just, just want to underscore that, that, um, you know, when I when I ran uh, technology for um, a national HIE um, that got into a lot of this complexity, um, even organizations that desperately want to do the right thing and serve the patient's wishes find it incredibly complicated to figure out what to do state by state. And then oftentimes there is specific technology or specific business requirements that require you to collect things just so in just this way as opposed to policy-driven uh, collection. So you'd love to be able to get to some universal set that was the the you know the the covering across uh, all of the states, and it turns out in many cases that's just totally impossible. I mean, literally impossible, and you've got to build state-specific behavior, and um, that really plays puts a a it puts a cap, it puts a limit on uh, in a world where. The business models behind health information exchange are, um, you know, every health information exchange talks about sustainable sustainability issues, which are often cover for nobody wants to pay for this stuff, even though it's vitally important for the care of uh, uh, care of individuals and care of populations. Um, then you layer on top state by state specific rules. Uh, organizations that want to do the right thing just end up spending a huge amount of money on uh, researching state by state rules and then building state specific implementations of um, capabilities. We haven't even gotten into the varying rules about when um, when uh, adolescent information can and can't be shared, uh, what age ranges, uh, you know, what, at what age uh, is disclosure to parents either forbidden or required. Um, you know, there's just a huge amount of complexity when you follow all these spider webs through that makes it way more expensive to do the right thing. Well, and I also think all, all states are not created equally in this regard and, and the consequences of the fragmentation of state rules um, cr create sort of different winners and losers, right? I mean, when, when California decides to do something that is um, out of step with with federal law or or more aggressive, um, you, you know you, you see um, businesses making a certain decision about how to deal with that, right? But um, you know there's one small state where where we do work where um, the the regulators have talked about a pretty stringent 
um, uh, sort of set of requirements for um, verifying patient consent before carrying out national health data transactions. And I could see, you know, businesses taking a look at that and saying, well, it's just not that the cost benefits not there. So, you know, we might not participate in certain lines of business in that state, which, um, you know, could really be to the detriment of, of patients and consumers there. Yeah, it definitely sets a high bar for compliance across the board. Um, so with that in mind and to kind of lead to our wrap up, you know, what are the key policy recommendations that in your minds, these need to be considered to really improve the process, move forward, move the needle on data exchange, if you will? So um, Deanne, you, you mentioned there not being sort of federal appetite for um, rules of the road out, outside of, of HIPAA, but in some ways I really do see this as, as the new frontier. Um, as CMS and, and other parts of the federal government have pushed um, the, the industry to make patient data more accessible to um, patients themselves in, in the manner that they, that they desire. Um, I, I think a lot of patients don't necessarily appreciate that um, you, you know, by pulling their data into the mobile app of their choice, um, that they are kind of grabbing that data and pulling it out of HIPAA land, right, or, or throwing it over the fence and entrusting it to, um, you know, a, a technology company or, or some third party that's going to be its custodian on their behalf. And I'm sure they might have privacy policies, but, you know, how many of us read those from start to finish? I, I think we're in a new world there. And, and you know, as this market evolves really rapidly, um, we're going to wake wake up or, or, the, or patients at large are going to wake up and um, start to grapple with um, the, the business models that develop around around all of this new data that's been freed from HIPAA. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more because I, just as an example, the privacy policies typically written by lawyers for lawyers. And by the way, if you're looking at it on an app on your phone and you're over a certain age, you better have your reading glasses on to read it. But Arian, go ahead. You're going to say something. Sure. Um... Uh, one of my favorite examples was uh, the California uh, vaccine my turn site that had, I think, three different um, sections that referred to various different flavors of privacy policies or, or uh, uh, assurances, um, warrants, uh, et cetera, that you had to go check the mark, that check the box on. And clearly it was done by lawyers for lawyers um, to, to comply with policy. Um, as opposed to explaining to patients what's happening with their with their data. Um, this is my opinion, uh, not the opinion of any organization, but I, I firmly believe that notwithstanding federalism, um, a uniform federal pr health privacy law would do both um, both patients, both all of us as individuals, and the health system a fair amount of good by putting all of this on an equal playing field. Um, and uh, it's a hard thing for Congress to take on, but that's sort of Congress's job and failure to take it on um, means that uh, we're going to be, we're gonna, we've, we've unintentionally, but intentionally built a patchwork of laws that apply in this situation, not that situation, 
a framework that confuses even people who know it really well and are trying to do the right thing, um, raises the cost of health information exchange to serve individuals, uh, populations, um, and the, the public health system uh, as a whole. We haven't even got, gotten into public health law and it's, it's, it's various boundary conditions. Um, and so I think there's a lot of good that could be done by a national preemptive uh, health, poli uh, health privacy law um, that puts everybody on an even playing field. Yeah, I, um, I would agree with your personal opinion. Um, again, my personal opinion matching yours. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems that we've really come to two polarizing positions um, in terms of federal privacy law conversations, and that is private right of action for damages and as well as whether federal law should preempt state law. Um, and those seem to be where everyone's conversations hit those two stumbling blocks. So um, more to come. I'm hopeful for the future that we're able to um, really move the needle and come to some understanding of, of data within HIPAA versus outside of HIPAA and um, you know more to come. Um, but I appreciate you, David, for being with us. Arian, thank you again, as always, for participating. This has been a really good discussion, and I'm sure we'll have um, many more follow-up discussions uh, related to this moving forward. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for links and resources and contact information related to today's episode. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kassim, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information on today's topic. Insight, innovation, transformation. Visit us online at changehealthcare.com. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Listeners should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any legal matter.